I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Howdy folks, welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution, Adrian here, January 2020. Today's episode is Linda Nathan, who has been editor of Australian Wood Review magazine for as long as it's been around. Great conversation. Linda has some great insights to share with us about woodworking and craft and all sorts of other things like music, important things like music. The other thing that's been happening over the last few months is that Australia's been burning and I just wanted to let everyone know that if you've lost something, my heart goes out to you. If your friends or family have lost anything, my heart goes out to you as well. It's been a pretty horrific time for a lot of people here in the country and it's going to take a little bit of time for all those emotions and for our country to recover. There's been a heap of people out there that have been working super hard to make sure people have been safe and looked after, including our firefighters and people in the support networks. If any of you are listening, thanks. Best wishes to all of you out there. If you've been affected directly or indirectly by Australia's fires, I wish you all well. In the meantime, let's welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution podcast, Linda Nathan. Thanks, Linda. Take it away. Welcome to Designer Maker Revolution, Linda Nathan. Thanks, Adrian. If you're at a party and someone asks you what you do for a living, how do you answer them? Well, I don't really enjoy talking about myself, which is rather strange sitting I'm here right now but I usually just say I work for a magazine yeah did you say you're an editor no it sounds a bit sort of you know I don't know what it sounds like but I might say I'm a writer but then I don't really feel like I'm just totally a writer either I'm just a lot of things how do you see yourself like this isn't about how you describe yourself to other people it's how you describe yourself to yourself how do I see myself? I don't know. I'm just a person. I like to keep busy and do things and um, I, I like my job. It interests me a lot. I love my family. I like my interests. There's nothing much to, special to say, really. When you are a young lady, would you have ever conceived that you would be an editor of a woodworking magazine? No, not at all. What did you conceive yourself to be doing? I didn't really know, to be honest. I just had various things, a few things that interested me. Um, no, I didn't really have a, a fixed plan. I wasn't quite sure what to do, to be honest. I like there were things I was good at at school, English and you know languages and music. But uh, yeah, I've never sort of thought about a job in journalism or writing. You actually uh, studied music. 
Well, I started, yeah, I started learning music uh, when I was about 13. And then I did that as a, a subject in year 11 and year 12. Just seemed kind of an easy thing to do, sort of get credit for. You didn't go to university and do it at the con? No, I, I sort of, I wanted to, but I didn't think I was good enough. I sort of selected myself out of that, lacked a bit of confidence, I think. And only years later, I sort of thought, oh, we probably could have because mm. not everybody that goes to the con is a genius. So, yeah. Maybe the passion just wasn't there and it was, if it was there, you would have done it, but it wasn't, so you didn't. Mm, I think the passion was yeah. there, but the confidence wasn't. Yeah. Do you regret not doing that? Yeah, I think I do. Although now, like it's a long time since then, mm. so I'm sort of I'm pretty good with that now. And uh, you know, I still play, so there's it's not not a problem. You play guitar. Well, I have started playing guitar again. Yeah, yeah I, I sort of went away from that for many years. You know, three kids kind of intervened, and you know, a job and all that stuff so kind of got me out of the practice regime that I've enjoyed yes. it's pretty hard to practice a lot when you have you know a pretty full-on life and kids and all that sort of stuff and it started to sort of frustrate me a bit so at the time i just put it aside yeah. did you play other instruments too yes yes i had a, had a bit of an affair with african drumming really? rather rather tolerated there actually <laughs> <laughs> Why was it tolerant? <laughs> well, I just got right into it, awesome. you know. <laughs> that is so awesome. Can you do polyrhythms and all of that? Absolutely. Oh, right. <laughs> polyrhythms used to be my middle name. <laughs> <laughs> what styles of African music were you trying to? Well, I played the djembe and I played the, you know, the bass drums mm. with sticks and, you know, it was Went into it as deeply as I yeah, could. Yeah, right. And how old were you when you did that? Let's say midlife. Yeah, okay. <laughs> get too personal. Yeah. No, look, I don't want to. Don't want to get personal like that. That's that's rude. But it is interesting to know at what stage in somebody's life somebody would get into this sort of thing. Um, yeah, I know. I think I don't know about you, but sometimes I've thought, oh, you might think, oh, you're getting older, you missed the boat with a lot of things, but. I don't think one has to think like that. If you want to do it, do it. I totally agree. And the time to do it is right now. That's right, because tomorrow never comes and and you can look off the perch at any any point. I talk about it with Lorraine all the time. Lorraine's my my lady and Mm. trying to figure out what we're going to do in the next couple of decades that we've got left. And I think it's a really good conversation to have. You know, now is the time. If we want to change our lives and put things into place we're going to do it now we're not going to wait and if we don't have superannuation or whatever when we're 75 well we don't we'll sort that out then Mm. yes i don't know some people make the plans and seem to be able to do five year ten year plans or whatever but yeah i've never really been like advocating for a five or ten year plan i'm advocating for a plan to do it right now more or less Sometimes you can't. Like, don't want to give people the wrong idea there. There's a whole lot of things I'd like to do, probably the whole lot of things you'd like to do, but you just can't. But you can put stuff into practice, like playing drums. You know, I want to play drums. or For me, I want to play a really loud electric guitar. That's what I love doing. I'm going to do it, Uh you know. 
Are you in a band? No. God damn it. It's really hard to find people to play with. Hmm. Well, people do it. It's possible. It is totally possible. And if I really wanted to, I'd go out there and I'd do it. But right now, I'm doing a podcast and I'm really into it. It's really, really <laughs> rock and roll. So I'm okay with that as well. <laughs> Got to go now. Got to go and join band. Except I'm going to be an African drummer. Did you ever play in a band? Yeah, I did. Hey, Believe it or was, not. Was Raph in there too? Yes, I've played in bands with Raph and I've played in bands without yeah, Raph. Right. What does he play? He plays drums, he plays guitar. He can sort of jump on a few things and just go with the flow. It's a bit of a family thing. Everybody, I mean, most people, well, a lot of people in our family play music and we have jams and, and we have had some pretty good jams. My brother-in-law is a fantastic guitar player. My son is an amazing yeah, player. Right. And my daughter, my elder daughter, she's fantastic. She can play guitar and piano. And my younger daughter is a beautiful singer. She plays piano yeah. too. They all yeah. do it. Do you have sing-alongs? Favourite songs you all like to sing? No, nah, not really. But sometimes if we've had jams, Rebecca or Alana, they're my daughters, so they might mm. sing. What do you play when you have a jam? Do you just sort of make it up as you go along or do you play songs? Um, well, I don't know. We'll, we'll play whatever we're told to now because some is usually Does correct. But, um... <laughs> we can play Rage <laughs> Against the Machine. What are we in the name of? One, two, three, four. <laughs> Here we go. Um, look, I don't know. Quite a bit of Hendrix comes up and a bit of Santa. Yeah, yeah. A bit of moon dancing and, you know, it, it's nothing amazing. It's just like a few old standards come out and then a few new ones, you know. They're all just nothing, just 12-bar blues. That's yeah, you good. can jam to 12-bar blues. It's it's a beautiful progression, I think. Everyone mm-hmm. knows it. What do you like to play, Adrian? Oh, I love – I love – blues and rock and roll and I love soundscapes as well and I did play with a really good friend of mine Dave Dave if you're listening big shout out we played together every week for a decade or more and we just made it up on the spot and it was it's just the most amazing when the music starts playing itself that is incredible there's no other feeling like that it's like everything's possible you become a vehicle for the music to be played. It doesn't happen all the time and it only really ever happened when we were quite well practised, which wasn't all the time. And we were both sort of in tune to desiring these sorts of experiences. And when we listened, but we recorded all of them too. When we listened back to it, you couldn't tell, which is so interesting. You just can't tell. You can't tell if it's somebody's in, in the groove 100% or if we weren't in the groove 100%. And I found that pretty interesting as a as a listener coming back at it. What you couldn't tell if it sounded no. on, or and surprisingly, because I I would have thought you'd really notice as a listener that somebody had, was they were being played as opposed to playing. Mm. But that's what we were after. We were after that experience of the music was just coming. It probably took. You know, we'd jam for about an hour, I suppose. It probably took about 20 minutes, half an hour before you'd even get possible for that. Like warmed yeah, up? kind of like warmed up, yeah. 
or just, I don't really know the way to describe it. Somebody else might be able to describe it better. And I've talked to um, friends of mine that are professional musicians and they, they experience it too, probably a little bit more regularly because they're very practiced at what they do. Like time just ceases to exist. That's mm. part of the experience. And another part of the experience is that there's a feeling that you could play anything and it'd be perfect. Just the right thing at the right time. It, and you could just, it just happens. Might last for five minutes, might last for 30 seconds, might last for even longer sometimes. And yeah, we, we, were, we were chasing down that feeling. But we weren't mm. playing 12 bar blues. We were just playing whatever came. And it was limited to the key of E. And that was the only limit. <laughs> so I'm very good in the key of E. That's all I can do. I can't play these songs. Very good in E. Yeah, it's a start. Part of the reason I got into the drumming was because the classical stuff that I'd learnt was all written down and on paper. And I was good at sight reading, so I didn't tend to memorise a lot of yeah, stuff. Really. And... For many years, I'd started to feel a little hollow about that, actually, because, I mean, most most of the world's musicians don't play from sheet music. They play from memory and they improvise or it's passed mm-hmm. on. But at one point, I was playing something in my room. I was I don't know what it was, some bar, something, whatever. And my, da- my younger daughter walked in, and I think she was about four at the time, and she said to me, Mummy, how come you still need the instructions? <laughs> <laughs> Sheet music as instructions. I love that. Yeah, and that really that kind of got me right in the Is gut. Really? Yeah, because it kind of echoed something I'd been thinking. I did that sort of around that time. That's when I sort of gave it away for a while. Well, quite a long while, actually. Um, and I think that was part of it. I, and I wanted to learn to find my own musical voice where I could improvise and play freely, you know, without reading. But then, of course, exploring African rhythms, I found out that it's actually very disciplined and there is a huge, huge legacy of rhythms and cultural significance attached to all of it. It's very complicated. You could, of course, you improvise within it, but it's it's very disciplined. It's not just some sort of random beating at a an object like a lot of people think you're just trying to get rid of the vent a lot of anger and frustration but it's got nothing to do with that it's a really sophisticated system of That's music how i would imagine it i, I don't know mm. if i'd imagine it being written down but i definitely imagine strong traditions that would be adhered to and a level of discipline that would be high so mm. did you break down those barriers too like okay so you, you you investigate African drumming, find out that there's discipline involved. Did you try and sort of break yeah. those down and actually transcend some of those things? Or What do you mean? Um, what am I trying to get at? I'm trying to get at it. Like your daughter says something to you that resonates. You know, do you need, why do you need the instructions? It's, it's like you're already thinking this. She just kind of catalyzed mm. it. And then you go and do African drumming to mm. perhaps improvise and sort of let your hair down or something. I'm just trying to find analogies that work here. <laughs> and, um, and you find out that it's actually really quite a rigid system in its own right. Did you? I loved that. That made me feel comfortable because that was something that I could work at and learn and appreciate its infinite complexity and, and know that I would never get anywhere 
near knowing it. Yeah. So that really, I enjoyed that. And it, it's a very rich culture and a very rich thing to sort of learn about. So that, that was really enjoyable. Yeah, you challenge. Uh, yeah. You mentioned when we were getting this conversation set up that what you do, you do for fairly nerdy reasons. Yeah. How does that fit in with being a magazine editor? Well, it's probably just, it's a reflection of, I, I just love doing, trying to do things well. I guess I'm a bit obsessive, a bit of a, you know, a perfection. You can never get anything perfect. It's just what makes me happy, mm. you know. It, I like to do that. If I, do, if I approach something in a manner where I don't really care about it, it, it'll be really boring for me and I won't do a really good job at it. But if I approach it, thinking, oh, I'm going to try and make this really good, then it will be interesting and I will enjoy it. And it's a bit new. you need to enjoy it to start with or could you apply that sense, a way of thinking about it to pretty much anything you tried to do? Not really. Not the way I'm, I'm made. If I, like I will do some bookkeeping around here, but I hate it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. I'll just keep whinging, but I'll sort of grit my teeth and do it. God damn. Get Raf to do it. He'd love to do that. I hate it, but I do it. Get Raf to do it, though. Nah, he won't do it. (laughs) When I met him, he he had the, um, what we called the shoebox system of accounting. Yeah, I know that one well. I've got a version of that. It's more of an envelope. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's got to be out of hand, you know? It's pathetic if you're trying to run a business, isn't it? It's you've got to keep on yeah. top of the bills and where the income's coming from. And well, you do. Uh, you are an owner operator still. You are, aren't you? You've got a few businesses, you two. Um, no, I don't. I just do the magazine. But Raf has, you know, he's he's designed a few tools over the years, the multi-score and a few brass rules and things like that, and he filled a few other things. But that's a sort of a sideline. His main, well, you should ask him if you, if you want to know what he does, but, yeah, he does other things. I do want to know what he does, and I will ask him. We're talking to you at the moment, so that's fair. I think that's fair enough. You've been at the centre of Australian woodworking for decades, but you're not a woodworker. Can you explain how all of that came about? Well, look, I don't know, one thing happened after another, I suppose. But I don't actually call myself a hobby woodworker now. I do do some woodworking. Yeah. I did a bit of woodworking before I even met yeah. Rat. I used to do stuff, make things, lino cups, a little bit of wood carving, make other things. I used to sell things, St Kilda Esplanade Market, believe it or not. I was a bit of bit crafty. Yeah, okay. Was your whole family like that? Uh, well, my family is pretty small on my side, but my mother was very, um, she, well, she didn't have much money, so she made everything, but she was really good at dressmaking and crocheting and all that sort of stuff. She was yeah. talented. Did she enjoy it? I think so, yeah. But, I mean, it was really a survival thing. Yeah, those sorts of times have changed, haven't they? Changed radically. Like women mostly with textiles, men with harder mm-hmm. materials, but the reasons you do them are quite different they're not for necessity anymore that's just because you want to yeah that's true yes it's different now. my mum knitted for a lot of her life i don't think she does now no it's not, it's not to be expensive but i mean decades ago it was actually cheaper to yeah. knit things yourself yeah. 
to do it until. And then once all these so-called craft revivals happened, then, you know, I guess there were businesses to be created and, and things got more expensive. It's quite expensive to buy yarn and wool and thread and fabric it now. It really is, isn't it? And clothes have got so much cheaper. Yeah, they're ridiculous. All that fast fashion. <laughs> fast fashion. It's like fast food, isn't it? That's what they call it. So were your parents really supportive with everything you wanted to do? No, not at all. Um, No, well, look, I had a different situation. My parents died when I was very young. Okay. So I had a rather strange upbringing, if you could call it that. The word upbringing doesn't really fit. No, I I reckon I brought myself up, to be honest. Mm. Do you reckon, do you, do you, it's not something you can miss, is it, because you never had it, but did you want to impart a support for your children for what they were doing? Did I what for my Just kids, sorry? support them. Like they wanted to do something that you didn't really understand. Well, I tried. I sure tried. I don't know if they would agree, but, yeah, I was, I love my kids, so I was very happy if they wanted to do stuff. I've been happy to see if they want to do things and then... Mm. That's great. It's cool when your kids want to yeah, do stuff. Yeah, I think so too. How did the idea for the Working With Wood shows come about? Well, the Wood show, I have to talk about Raph because it was Raph's idea, that one. He used to sort of mutter on about wanting to go to a wood show. He'd see sort of fun woodworking magazine would have an ad for the for wood shows or whatever. He'd say, gee, I'd love to go on one of those wood yeah. shows. And one day he came home and I can even, I can remember it looking across this table and seeing him standing there. And he said, I've hired the exhibition building. What did you, what did you say? I think I was gobsmacked. Yeah. How much did it cost, Raph? A lot of that ran through my mind. But at that point, my son was probably, I don't know, I don't know if he was even walking then. I had another, my elder yeah. daughter, and he was just standing there in his overalls. He'd come home and I've hired the exhibition buildings. What are you talking about? So anyway, that's how it started. And then, um, yep, we did it. Took about a year, quite an intense year. I always said the first, the hardest person to convince about the whole thing was me. Once I got on board with it, I mean, there was no stopping it, really, no stopping him. He he did it. And out of that came Wood Review magazine. No, not really. Um, We did the Wood show for two and a half years, and then we sold it because it wasn't the sort of life we wanted to keep doing. It was sort of, it, it went really well right from the yeah. start. Um, it's pretty obvious that it would have to sort of go into state and, you know, get big and all that sort of mm. stuff. And um, as Raph saw it, I, I think it was, you know, it would require to sort of wear suits and walk around and do stuff like that. And that wasn't what he wanted to do. No. Um, so we left it, sold that, and then we had about a year off. And then the magazine thing, I don't know. We we never we don't know who's thought of it really. We used to sort of look at magazines and say, "Yeah, we could do that. I reckon we could yeah. do that." Which, of course, we really didn't know what we were doing, but um, so we had a yeah. go. Were you working during this period? I mean, okay, so you're doing the working with wood shows, but did you have a job apart from that? Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I paused. Then was I working? I've never not yeah. worked. <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah, I mean, it was full yeah. on. It was all consuming, really. Uh, any small businesses, any mum and dad business can be all consuming. Sure can. The thing about small businesses is that it just never, ever stops. 
you know, you get the kids, especially when the kids are young, get them into bed and you go back to work and you, you um, play tag team and all sorts of fun things like that. And if you're not on the same page, it can be awfully tense. Mm, I would think so because it can be stressful, that's yeah, for sure. because you're taking risks all the time. That's part of what small businesses are. Yeah, and you've got to kind of fulfil every single role. You know, you don't have like a team or, a, and the, you know, unless you sort of develop your business along a sort of a model like that and you're best Yeah, and then you're a manager. Yeah, you've got to be kind of everything, mm. don't you? I interviewed John Madden last weekend and he's just come mm. to uh, Wood Dust Festival, which is kind of working with wood shows rejigged into the 2019 period. You talk about those sorts of shows they're long past, the business is long sold. He's talking about it just on the tail end of it. And it's interesting to me the, the differences in the way you spoke, just talking about it. It's more of a story for you now. It's like, oh, Raf hired the, the the biggest exhibition building in the Southern Hemisphere or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, and John's going, oh my god, I've just finished this thing and I'm so burnt out, and I just I'm going to do it again because I need to do it again. It's important, but yeah, I don't know. That's just a comment. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I, he's in the throes of it, I guess, and you know, it's a long time ago now. But um, yeah, look, I could understand why John would be feeling quite overwhelmed by it. It's a very very big thing to do to to undertake something like that. Did people get behind you and help or did they wait until you tried it out? No. Well, well, the thing is we worked our butts off for that year beforehand and it wasn't – we we did manage to get a sponsorship from the Timber Promotion Council in Victoria. Right. So we had a bit of seed money. That was invaluable. And TPC was also very supportive morally as well as, I mean, it wasn't just a financial thing. They kind of believed in us and that really meant a lot and they were, you know, we talked to them and they were nice to us. As far as did people get behind, well, no, we just made it happen, really. We had a, another, well, he is a friend of ours who who did, who sort of helped us with marketing. I mean, he was on the team. It's a sort of a team thing. He wasn't a friend. He was. Yeah. A, we paid him. But, yeah, we just worked really hard. It wasn't a matter of... Did people get behind us? We we made it happen. Mm. You know, people often look at something that sort of appears to be an instant success and they think, oh, yeah, it was just the right time and that was going to work and, yeah, I knew that would be great. But in my experience, it doesn't happen like that. You have to make yeah, it Yeah, it's my experience too. One of the things I'm trying to tease out with all of these conversations is a sense of an Australian way of doing things even. Peter Walker, who I interviewed, he was the very first event I did with this series. He's worked in the States for a long time and he felt and still feels that in the States, if you've got an idea that's a good one, people will just jump on board and say, oh, okay, right. I'm going to introduce you to this person and I've got a bit of money. I'm going to chuck some money into it and we're going to get this happening. People just throw themselves into somebody else's idea with enthusiasm. He feels that the Australian, by contrast, is people will wait and see if it succeeds and if it does succeed, then maybe they'll get on board and bit of a, and there's a bit of a tall poppy syndrome. I'd like to see Peter's sense of things be proved wrong and if it's not proved wrong, I'd like to see it change. 
Mm. I don't know. Look, when you go into something or when you're doing something, if, if you're looking around waiting for everyone to pat you on the back and tell you to keep going, you you got you might be waiting for a while. I mean, you <laughs> you just need you just need to keep going. That's an awesome answer. That's a killer answer. Let's not worry about that shit. Get onto it. Well, I don't know. It's it's not going to help you if you're waiting for, for that probation. I mean, or if you, you use it as an of, excuse for not doing stuff. Yeah, that's right. If you've got an idea and you believe in it, you just got to make it work. Mm, bloody good. Or, or if you see, and you know, sometimes not everything works. You know, you got to pull the pin sometimes too. Yeah. Have you ever had to do that? Yeah, of course. We've had a few things we've done that just didn't work and then we just, you know, of course we licked our wounds a bit and felt a bit stupid and dumb and depressed. But, you know, life goes yeah, on. sure does. One of the things I remember John Howard, our past Prime Minister, saying when something bad really happened, I can't remember what it was, but it was politically disastrous for him. He said, I'm going to draw a line under this and I'm going to move on. And I've taken that really clear, concise way of thinking to heart a little bit. We're not talking politics here. We're just talking about ways of thinking. And Mm. I think it's a good way of dealing with setbacks and even looking at the risk of maybe having a setback. Mm. Yeah, I think when things don't work, it's good if you can acknowledge it, accept it, accept yourself. Maybe you didn't do the right thing, you know. Accept it, it make amends if you need to do to do that and just like that's the start of moving yeah, forward. Keep moving forward. When you st- first became the editor of the Australian Review, were you nervous? Not really. I don't think I even knew what it meant, but we did this magazine and we gave ourselves titles. I think we only sort of learnt what that meant after a while. <laughs> did you fight over titles? I'm editor. No, I'm editor. Um, no. <laughs> Not at all. No, we never thought over anything of that no. like that. It was um, there was just like two of us, and stuff had to be done, and we sort of split yeah. it up. Did that magazine take a while to get off the ground, or was it instantaneously? Uh, the first one didn't do as well, but we sort of went back and thought, oh, we better have another go. And the second one went really well, mm. and uh, then we just kept going. So the second edition. Yeah, it's a second issue. Did you get yep. um, help from outside, some skills from outside of how to run a magazine, how to distribute it? Because there's all sorts of stuff that you, you can't even conceive of until you try and put these things into practice. Printing, layout, artwork. Mm, yes, and back then it, was, it wasn't it was all digital either. Mm. Um, so images, I mean, there was no, no such thing as a digital camera. So it was trannies like slides, 45mm or bigger transparencies or prints, and you had to get them scanned and then you had to get them placed like into an imposition with text. You gave graphic files and, scan, you know, images that had to be scanned and it was put together and it, came, it just took forever. And they produced something called film, big sheets of film and produced, made plates and printed it and it just went on and on and on. expensive you know? too. Yeah, yeah, it was expensive, that's for sure. Are there more magazines nowadays, given that it must be a whole lot easier to produce them than back then, or has the magazine industry changed? Oh, yeah, it's definitely changed, yeah, because because there's so much content online now and because so, so 
much information is published online. I mean, and we have so many different platforms, social media, YouTube, you know, all these things. And they're all kind of competing for people's attention, for people's dollars. So, yeah, print magazines, it's, it's quite Yeah, good. you've got to do all of that now, don't you? You've got to not only produce a printed hard copy magazine, but you've got to do Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, we have a, a digital magazine in a sense as well. We have our online web website, which is web news, and we distribute it fortnightly through e-letters, with social media, we have a um, Facebook page, an Instagram page, a YouTube channel, and it's just, that's the direction that modern media's gone in, just being, you know, publishing across different platforms. And you've negotiated that entire change in your role as editor of Wood Review. How's that gone? Has there been ever a time where you've thought, oh, I just don't want to do this particular aspect, this new particular aspect that I've got to I prefer I prefer it was like it was the old days or something. Well, as you know, Raph and I started the magazine, but we sold it to Yappa Media in 2013. So at that point, we had a website, we had Facebook page, I think. We didn't produce an e-letter. So once Yappa took it over, it went, then went into their model as far as having the digital magazine as yeah. well. The social media, I started the Instagram page. I didn't really want to actually at that point. I, a few people were saying, oh, you've got to get on Instagram. And I said, oh, God, no, not another bloody thing to do. Um, so actually, Bern Chandley, I blame him. I saw him in London. <laughs> You're a very, very naughty boy, Mr. Chandley. <laughs> In 2015, I thought, oh, I better do this. And I said, hey, Bern, how do you do a yeah, post? Yeah, yeah. He showed me and that was, yeah, you know, all those things. You just have to do it, don't you? Much like probably doing a podcast. Uh, yeah, you yeah, you get in there and you solve the problem that needs to be solved. How do you do this? And you find out and you get it done. <laughs> Bloody good burn though, hey. Like he's a champion dude, that dude. I love that guy. Yeah, he's a lovely How guy. How much of the Wood Review is a passion project or is it simply a job? Um feel like I've ever had a job in some in a certain sense it's it's all passion for me really I mean I, that sounds really horrible doesn't yeah, it to say that but awesome. I'm so jealous um yeah I don't know I don't think I could do something if it were just a job yeah. I would, I'd get really depressed I don't know it goes back to I like to sort of enjoy what I do and be interested and try and do a good job it's nothing amazing it's just that's enjoyable mm. for me I mean, like a lot of other people have input into the into it as well. It's like it's not just one. Person. No, but they're not here, and you are. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the interesting craft has waxed or waned over the last thirty years? I think it's research, don't you? I mean, don't don't you think? I mean, we had all the the makers movement, the so called makers movement. Of when did that start? Four or five years ago, it sort of seemed to hit a new mm. high. And it seems different to how it is. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Can you articulate what that difference is? Well, I would say there's more a level of professionalism attached to it. And I think the enablers have been social media and, and the fact that people can connect directly with a clientele. They can find buyers for their, the things they make. They can market directly. 
people can have a sort of a direct relationship with the maker. To me, that's that's really what 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 enables people to have a career in in the craft yeah. now. Look, it's been so clear to me for decades now that if somebody commissions me to do something or buys even buys a piece of mine, they're buying part of me. That's their intent. Yeah, I mean, it's not all just because of social media. I mean, not everyone's into the social media. But it is definitely, you know, like we also had a business making furniture as well. Often it was people as Raph as a maker, they they wanted to connect with him because he made it. That's what they liked, the fact that he made it and they knew the person. It's exactly right. um, And everybody I've spoken to is in the same position. And quite aware of it. I think clients out there would be fully aware of it too. Mm, yeah, it's that connection, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's really important. And the social media does facilitate that. It really does. It means that you don't have to stand at an exhibition and uh, wait for people to come and have a chat to you. They, people can find out about who and what you are just by looking online. And if they want, they can give you a ring or whatever like that, you know. And you can sell online, you can sell on eBay and directly. Yep, and you can sell services too. And the digital world has made marketing so much you know, more easy with an iPhone, with a smartphone. You can take a photo, you can upload a video, you've got all those tools and just within your yep. grasp. And people are also keen to see that content as well. They're aware it's out there. They want to see it, yeah. What about the skill levels in woodworking during this waxing and waning of craft? It's very hard to make general statement, really. Yeah. I think I think things have improved. I think people are more visually literate. I think probably exposure to more, to knowing more about what, say, a piece of fine woodwork is, you know, and I guess social media and all the online platforms bring people into a closer connection Mm. to seeing other people's work and knowing what's going on. Yeah, I think so. But it's hard to generalise. It really is hard to generalise, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And I was talking to Linda Fredheim the other week about training, Mm. like getting skills to do the craft that we're increasingly interested in doing. Both she and I went to university to learn the skills, but both of those courses are so radically different now. Can't go to those places anymore to learn those skills. But I've long felt that learning skills from a YouTube platform isn't anywhere near as successful or efficient as learning them from somebody who's right there next to you somebody who can say, I'm doing this, it's not working out right. Can you explain to me how I can do it better or why it's not working out right? You can't do that with a YouTube platform as easily. You can in the comments, I guess, but... Yeah, I think think a good teacher is invaluable. I also think that if you do a course or like an established sort of course or or go to someone's school, you, you kind of made a commitment. I mean, you can YouTube, you can watch something and, and you've got to have a lot of discipline to make that happen. Maybe some people don't, but I would have thought you did. So, yeah, I think people, I think the courses are good. I mean, there's more, many more options for private tuition now. Than there's people. heaps more, yeah. Do you consider yourself ambitious? Um, no, not really. I don't really think like that. Probably just more absorbed in the here and now, really. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what would I want to become? I don't know. 
So. <laughs> it may not be what you want to become. It might be what you want to develop. You might want to have. I want to be an astronaut. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you could try. You could probably, if you had a billion dollars, you could probably do that. I, I don't reckon I'd get in to astronaut school. No. no, you don't reckon you'd give Elon a, a ring, say, hey, Elon, put me on your next rocket ship. Um, I did and have always had a strong feeling that your personal ambitions aren't included in what you do. And I find it I find it admirable. I think David McLaren, who's the creative director of Bung to Aldworks, is in a similar position. Do you have any advice for the big ambitions in yourself or for others that have got big ambitions so that people feel good about their abilities and achievements as they are? Mainly just keep going like if you have an idea if there's something you want to do it's a lot of it's just doing it and that sounds i'm not trying to make that sound trite but it's just every day the the everyday slog that will get you there usually Mm. i believe i mean even people who you can see have an innate talent i mean you can see people pick up an instrument or a tool and they just seem to be like a natural but it doesn't mean that they will take that skill somewhere so if you've got the perseverance, if you make every effort to, you know, explore every avenue, increase your skills, learn about marketing, learn different things, you, you're going to more than likely going to get wherever you want to go. Mm. It's not a re- not really a, a magic thing, you know. I suppose you've got to have a little. You've got to be a bit easy on yourself sometimes too. I think so that. You know, where you come up against a roadblock or you feel you're not getting it or you can't do something, I think you have to know when to kind of back off for a day or two and let it sit there and then come back to it. Yeah, I reckon that's great advice. I'm kind of thinking about people, well, in particular Matthew Harding here. He, um, hugely talented, but couldn't get it together with the ambition or that he, look, I, I don't know exactly what his position was. This is just my sense of it. Where he thought he should be placed in the world and where he actually was, he couldn't reconcile that. And I think there's there's an anxiety or a depression or something that comes inherently from that confusion. Um, This is where I should be. This is where somebody else was or whatever and I'm not there and I should be there or how can I not be there or therefore I'm a failure or something. I, I think people can fill in their own self-talk. Maybe the question of balance too. Like, you know, we have families, we have loved ones, we, we might have children and sometimes you have to kind of step back from your, your passion or whatever it is that you're doing and, and just limit that to some extent. And remember there are other people there too and, and sort of other parts of your life to, to live as well. Yeah. Balance thing, maybe. I don't know. I didn't know Matthew on that level, but I'm concerned about that too. It's not about knowing Matthew. It's more about, and it's not about Matthew in particular. It's about doing something that could be amazing, could also be really mediocre, feeling that it's not what you want it to be and how we can negotiate those feelings and put them into perspective. So if somebody wants to be an editor of a magazine, 
a step into a there's all sorts of goals that you've got to and skills you've got to learn to do that activity that you don't know yet somebody might roll with those punches and just learn those skills as and when they can and how they do it and do it anyway and other people might go oh no I can't I just can't I'm, I'm hopeless I'm gonna bail and I'm trying to tease out some ideas or skills that people can learn so that they don't bail they hang in there keep trying to find new opportunities and yeah. try and enjoy what it is they're doing when they're doing it without having this negative self-talk that is a proper mm-hmm. pain in a lot of people's lives. Well, I think you've sort of answered, answered the question. If there was a question there, really, yeah, you have to do just do one thing at one step at a time and um, try not to listen to the negative self-talk. Try and be busy mm. on the one step at a time. Yeah, keep a perspective around it. I mean, when, with anything you do, I mean, you... You've got, if you sit down to do something you don't know, you're going to have to say, what's the first thing I've got to do? Oh, yeah, I need this, I need that. Oh, what about that? I'll help. Gosh, better do that. It's, it's just making a plan and um, working through steps. It's easier. Yeah. I reckon if you try and break it down into things like facts, things you can actually prove, and remove the feeling out of it, like, oh, I feel this is the scent, the, the case, this is the situation, rather than, oh, okay, let's actually find out what the facts of the situation are. That makes it a little bit easier to comprehend what's actually going on. Um, I think you've got to try and reduce it down to the job in hand, job at hand, really. In, for somebody in your position, it would be really easy to alienate people in the community for all sorts of reasons. What <laughs> skills Thank you. do you... <laughs> you don't. <laughs> what skills do you have to counter the negative feelings of other people that are out there? Well, look, <laughs> I'm sure I've alienated some people. I don't know. Um, I think... You've always got to try and imagine what it's like to be the other person, don't you? Mm. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. I mean, most people are sincere about what they do and mm. what they're trying to do, so you need to respect yeah. that. I think having integrity for yourself is really important too. It builds a respect, mutual respect. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you've got to try and be yourself mm. um, and not be someone who you think people think you should be or I don't know, that gets all too complicated. But I'm sure it's an art to sort of, for some of us, to just be ourselves and not worry unduly as to what people think of us. And if you're honest and you are straightforward in your dealings, you should be okay. Yeah, setting boundaries that are realistic and... Don't pretend to be who you're not. Don't pretend to know things you don't know. Stuff like that. Critiquing work is a really difficult task. Is it a loaded gun for you or are you happy to give advice to anybody that asks for it? Yeah, I don't really see myself as an advice giver. Um, A few people have asked me over the years. It's gone okay, but I have, on on, on occasion, it hasn't gone well and I think you've got to be careful with that, really. I guess you've got to kind of understand what that person is wanting 
It depends who you are. I mean, if you are like a, a bona fide furniture master or whatever, well, then if someone asks someone like that to critique, well, you're very lucky to get that feedback, I guess. But, yeah, it's a difficult mm-hmm. thing. It's a difficult thing and it's a two-way street. It's got to be the person giving has got to be respectful and considerate and objective mm-hmm. and the person receiving it has got to be open and take it on mm-hmm. board and, you know, try and embrace what they're being told, I suppose. Yeah. But people should never be arrogant or you should never be glib or nothing like that. It's all, it needs to be done in a serious kind of yeah. What business or marketing advice could you give to an emerging woodworker or artist to help them on their way? To keep working on one's design skills, particularly to try and have like a body of work. It's good if you, if when you go out into the professional arena, if you have a few pieces that you can sort of discern, they come from the same maker, but that is developing your ideas, working through them. If you can spend some money and get some really good photos done of, of the things you make, you know, that you want to sort of show people, that's an invaluable investment. And don't get in the photos yourself. You can always chuck one of those in too. It's good to, to show the maker. But yeah, no, good, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, you don't think so? No, I don't think so. If you're going to get a photo of yourself in the work, with the work, make yeah. sure it's done by the professional. Well, you mean don't take a selfie? No. <laughs> Well, no, do definitely take selfies for Instagram. But if you want to promote it, perhaps on your website through your magazine, get them done by a professional with proper lighting, proper cameras. Yeah, but and I, I like to show people in the magazine as well. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always like to see the person, don't you? I, no, not all the time. If I want to see a piece, I want to see a piece. I want to see it. I want to see. There's an in, if if somebody gets it photographed properly, it's an investment. It's part of the importance of that piece. I think. Yeah, good photos. Absolutely. Well, you've always had the good photos taken, and you've got that whole. You know, your body of work is there now. And partly because I invested in that. Yeah, mm. yeah I, w- I would definitely recommend that investment. I'd get the best photography you can you can't afford. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just do it. Just fess up. But you don't do it for everything. You do it for the ones, the pieces that are meaningful. Yes, exactly. And and you can use your iPhone for the other stuff. You, you know? can. Mm. Yeah. Or buy a cheap DSLR or something. When you walk into the office or the workshop, if you're doing a bit of woodwork, what brings you most joy? Um, probably somebody's cleaning the place up. But um, just entering that space where I can do what I want to do. I'm not that complicated. I I like to work on the processes. I like to have, I've got a nice space here that overlooks the bush. I work at home. It's great. Get up in the morning, go in, do what I like to do. Do you work nine to five? Is it a really set time or you just go in when you want and come or when you've got work to do or? Well, I'm supposed to work certain hours, but not, I am allowed to be flexible, but I find early is my time. That's a good time yeah. for me. You know, like I'm an early morning person. Yeah, fair enough. What are the new challenges coming up for you? I suppose life beyond work because I like work. I don't know, I have to stop it, I suppose, at some point. <laughs> 
Your new challenge is just making sure you can keep doing it. <laughs> I don't know. I'll find something else to do. <laughs> I've got other things I do like to do as well. What are they? I like cooking. I like my fam. I love seeing my kids and yeah. doing stuff like that, family. Do you have amazing furniture in your home? Yeah, some of it's great. There's furniture, quite a bit that wrapped in it. Some of it I've made. You might be surprised to know. We have, I'm in the kitchen now, we've got two chairs made by me, two stools made by me, two armchairs made by Raf. We've got uh, two coffee tables. Yeah, it's nice. It's cool. I like having stuff made by a human being. Yeah, me too. I really do too. Yeah. What's the best decision you ever made? Oh, gee, I don't know. I have no idea. Mm. I don't know. That's a bit deep for me. <laughs> I don't know. I can't think of anything momentous to say to that. You might have the top three. The top three? Yeah. Top three. You don't have to have the top three, but you might. Like you could have five best decisions. Um, I'm more of a day-to-day person, you know. I'm not a planner and I'm not a – someone says, oh, yes, I'm going to turn around and save the world tomorrow – doesn't happen for me like no. that. What's the hardest decision you ever made? Hmm. You know, I'm not going to be good on the decision questions. I can't can't make a decision about that. I'm afraid. <laughs> That's fine. If you could go back and give advice to a young Linda, what would it be? Do you think you'd listen? I'd probably say believe in yourself a bit more. Be a bit more confident. You know, mm. don't write yourself off before you've even tried. Mm. But that's about Would it. Would you listen to that advice? Probably not. How can people get in touch with you? Um, is on the website. It's in the magazine. It's everywhere. It's like, yeah, just jump online. You'll find a, an email address. Not hard to find me. On social media, you can message me. If you want yeah. to. It's woodreview.com.au. It's the website. That's yeah. the website, yeah. Get in touch with Linda via that. Have we left anything out? No, I think this has been exhaustive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> even made discoveries about myself I didn't know. No. <laughs> really? No. Nah, <just> <laughs> I didn't ask you about the skeletons in your closet. The reason they're skeletons is because they're, they're staying in the closet, I guess. But, yeah, no, it's just probably... What I meant by that is like a bit of a weird childhood or whatever, but, you know, it's over, it's past. Yeah. Does it haunt you? No, it's over. Did it haunt you when you were younger? Oh, it was, my life was pretty horrible. Um, By the time I hit about 16 or 17, I started to kind of feel better. And and in some ways I I felt quite strong then. I thought, can't get that bad again. It can only get better, so yay. Yay. 16 and 17 for a young lady is a pretty troublesome time. My daughter's 16 and a half. She is suffering and it's heartbreaking for me seeing that. You must have come through that okay. Yeah, and I mean, I've had kids too. It is a hard time. I don't know if it's harder at any particular age. I think it's probably harder at any age, but, well, they talk about the effect of social media, don't they, on young people. There are so so many images out there to measure yourself against that you may not be 
measuring up to, I suppose, if there if you have any insecurities. So it is a tough time. Having having, having interests can get you through if you've got interests. I think. Yeah, interests give you a reason, a meaning. Mm-hmm. Family members. Yeah. I reckon it's great that you managed to find some strengths and solace at a young age. There would be people who would find themselves in their 30s and 40s and going, oh my God, what have I done? Yeah, well, look, it's, I mean, what what you want is to be able to leave it behind, you know. Someone once said to me, you know, you, you take your rubbish to the rubbish tip, you don't bring it back home with you, leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> That's an awesome analogy, mm. metaphor, analogy, something, whatever, one of those. Linda, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. Thanks, everyone out there for listening. That was Linda Nathan. Really, really appreciate her time. I appreciate your time for listening too. I've got a request for some assistance. I've been doing this podcast for a couple of months now and doing the audio has taken an awful lot of time for me and I've been learning a lot. There are some things that are still really hard to get my head around and if there's anybody out there and you know about what a compressor does and how EQ works, if you can help me with some of this audio, it'll be such a great thing. If you can, get in touch make at designermakerrevolution.com. See you next week. Ciao.